Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, so that we, by faith, can come to know you, to know ourselves, to love others. And we thank you for the hope of salvation, of eternal life that we all have. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So I have a question for everyone. Let's wait till, okay, it's up. I have a question for everyone this morning, and you're probably not going to be answering me out loud. Who do you hate? And I'm sure you're like, Steve, this is church. I don't hate anybody. I love people, you know, but, um, but it, really when it comes down to it, uh, most of us, if we're honest, probably have people we dislike, people that, are, that we might even consider enemies. However, the philosopher in the mid-1800s, Soren Kierkegaard, doubted that for the people in his day. He said, their lusts are dull and sluggish, their passions are sleepy. This is for the reason my soul always turns back to the Old Testament and to Shakespeare. I feel that those who speak there are at least human beings. They hate, they love, they murder their enemies and curse their descendants throughout generations. They sin. But what about us? Do we have that kind of passion? Is Kierkegaard right? Well, I think if we're, if we're honest, all of us do. We know that we're sinners. We know that we fall short on our own. And most of us probably have people that we do not like to be around. Perhaps we despise them. Maybe we have good reasons to even hate them. I remember growing up in northern Virginia, I never really hated anything. I had a good family. But one thing I did hate was the Dallas Cowboys. Let me tell you. I was a Washington Redskins fan at the time, and uh, I did not like the Cowboys. And I remember in 1982, in the NFC Championship, Dexter Manley sacked Danny White and knocked him out of the game, gave him a concussion, and I was jumping up and down and doing the the Redskins cheer, going crazy. I hated the Cowboys, and so did a lot of Redskins fans. We had posters that said Dallas, and I'll use the nicer word, stinks. And uh, we, would, uh, we would chant that at RFK Stadium. That was the, the deal, but I hated them. And then as I got a little bit older, I started to know what real hate was. I had a lab partner in seventh grade science, and I could not stand this kid. He was so annoying. Every day he would try to bother me. He would just say things to get under my nerves because he knew I had a quick temper. And one day I said to him, and I'm protecting his name, right, because you'll see why. So anyway, I was, uh, one day I said, if you keep bothering me, I'm going to smack you upside the head. And sure enough, he kept bothering me, so I went quack, and I smacked him upside the head. And rather than get mad or a fight, he just started laughing hysterically. And everybody looked at me, and uh, we became friends. It was weird. <laughs> Five years later, when the Redskins went back or Actually, 1986, yeah, three years later from then, when the Redskins went back to the Super Bowl, guess whose house I was watching the game at? This same guy. Now we're friends on Facebook and uh, keep up with each other. But if, you know, I think if we're honest, all of us have people that, uh, that bother us, that get on our nerves. There's a great bumper sticker that says, Jesus love you, loves you, but everyone else thinks you're a jerk. Maybe you feel that way about certain people. I don't know. 
There was a Google search recently. Um, I was kind of looking this up, and there's Google search. I mean, there's top ten lists on everything, but this is one top ten uh, people that we secretly hate. And they had one were mergers. You know those people that go, there's a traffic jam, they go all the way to the top rather than merge in and then clog up traffic even more. We all know about those people. People who let their dogs, you know, go to the bathroom in their yard and don't clean it up. That was another one. The no headphones guy that has their music and is letting everyone hear it. Or the speakerphone person, you know, the one who's talking on speakerphone as they're walking through Walmart. And you're like, really? I don't want to hear your conversation. They haven't here someone who uses a Groupon for their first date. Well, that, that could be bad. I'm looking over at Greg. Um, they have horrible tippers. I could add a few. People who don't know how to navigate the circle right over there. And then when I pull out of here every day, there's the tourists on the bikes that don't seem to realize there's a stop sign where cars pull out. And every day I feel like I'm going to seriously hurt somebody. We all have people that drive us crazy. But let's be honest, there are people that we genuinely have trouble loving, and for good reasons, whether it be murderers, abusers of children, terrorists, or perhaps on a very, very personal matter, maybe a friend or a trusted one who betrayed your trust and hurt you or a family member deeply. It's difficult to love people. In the gospel reading that Kathy read today, it said we're to love our enemies. Sounds good, but the application of that is pretty difficult. Yet we're challenged by this in our gospel reading. But for us as believers on our own, this is impossible to love those or even befriend those that we despise. But the good news for all of us this morning is that when we build our lives on Christ and we see the world through his lens, as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can see everybody, including ourselves, as worthy of redemption. We can see nobody outside the scope of God's love. We can be people of passion and action who bring the good news to all people, regardless of whether we like them or they're difficult to love. This morning, as we grapple with this scripture that Kathy read, it's easy to dismiss or download this passage. It's the Sermon on the Mount. You know, be meek, be mild, don't hurt people. It'd be easier to find another Bible verse that says, talks about God's vengeance when we think about people we don't like. And the, the problem is, is when we read the Bible that way, we can do biblical gymnastics to make the Bible say anything we want to. You know, about a month ago, Greg preached on uh, the supremacy of Christ. How in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. In other words, Jesus is part of the Godhead. He's part of the Trinity. He was there in creation. In Genesis 1.26, God speaks in plural when he says, Let us make man in our image. And then in John 1.14, that the Word became flesh. The Word with the capital W. It came before the written Word. And now because of Christ, when we read Scripture, we read Scripture through the lens of Christ. So we cannot ignore these words. These are the spoken words of Christ as he challenges people who were reading the Old Testament and using it ways to manipulate how they wanted to live life. We need to submit scripture to the big word, to Jesus Christ. When we understand this, scripture becomes very powerful. 
when we understand this and we look at Scripture through Jesus' lens, we understand that we are included in God's attitude and his love for the world. It says right here in Romans 5, 8 through 12, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only in this, but also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The Apostle Paul wrote these words. And when you read his letters, you'll understand that he was the biggest of hypocrites. He, was the, he considered himself one of the biggest enemies of God, but he understood what God did on the cross. He understood that he was included in God's redemptive work. And because of that, he had a heart to tell everybody about it, to tell people that through belief that they too can come into this kingdom, come into this family, that they are included in God's redemptive work. With this being said, there is hope for all of us who believe. There is hope for you and I, for our neighbor, for the stranger, and that person that makes it very difficult to love. Christ died for you and for them. For Christ came not to condemn the world, but to save the world through Christ. For all who believe. When we understand that we're included, that we were once enemies, it changes the way we think about people. So God doesn't leave us there with telling us we're included. Hey, you're included. He says more than that. He says now it's time to participate. And it's not this kind of participation. Because when I think of participation, I think of when I was on the swim team when I was a kid. And I was good at land sports, but I was not good at water sports at the time. And I remember riding my bike to swim practice saying, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. But I was participating, right? And so we go to the meets. I remember I would always get like last place or second to last place. The one time I got third place, there was three people in the event. And I would, get, <laughs> I would get these ribbons, and they weren't like red, white, or blue. They were like yellow and some other colors. I don't even know what they stood for. And I would get like this certificate saying that I swam. I think it was basically said, you did not drown. Congratulations. You made it across the pool. But no, the participation that God calls us to is a powerful participation. It's not a one foot in. It's our whole lives surrendered to him. We understand that we're included. And because of this, we don't see people differently. We're included in the Trinitarian life, the inner life of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. As Karl Barth put it, put it this way, as the Christian lives in Christ and Christ lives in the Christian, the Christian comes to participate in what Christ does. We join in the activity of what God is already doing. So what does Christ do? And what is he calling us to do? When we look at his incarnation, you know, when, as he lived and walked among people, he was friends with a lot of people that others considered enemies, undesirables. He hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes, foreigners, religious hypocrites. He hung out with people that people ignored, the poor, people that were considered unclean, lepers, the invalids. He was known as a friend of sinners. But rather than just being a model for us to say, oh, that's a good way to live life, 
he empowered his disciples to do the same thing. He said, love one another as I have loved you. And he said, you'll have power to do this when the Holy Spirit comes to you at Pentecost. And so the early church grew out of this kind of love. And by the way, this same love covers us. We are loved by Christ, and he is calling for us to love people in the same way that he told his disciples to love. We are called to our powerful participation. And this participation calls for extreme movement. It's not just knowing it and saying, yeah, yeah, I'll join in. It causes us to do things that are uncomfortable, to cross the road, to rub shoulders with people we wouldn't normally do. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes and puts that Christ lens on us so we don't see people the same way. We understand we're loved. We understand we're included. And we want other people to know they're included in God's redemptive work. We want other people to participate like we do, to come to belief, to come to faith. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Wait a second. Now, if we do a bunch of good to our neighbor, then we can throw coals on their head. So it's kind of like, look at me. I'm doing good things for you. Now I'm going to like burn your scalp. Now, that's not actually what he was saying. See, in the Middle Eastern culture, they carried everything's on their head in these clay pots. Hopefully they weren't paper, right? So they carried uh, that. And one of the ultimate ways of hospitality is when your neighbor's fire went out was to get coals from your own fire to put it in their pot and they would carry it on their head. So this whole statement is one of kindness, not just for your friends, not just for your strangers, but for even people who are enemies. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan. Many of you are familiar with that. You had religious people, strong Jewish uh, religious people, walk by a guy who had been beaten up. And finally you had a Samaritan who was considered a half-breed. A lot of racism towards these kind of people. The Samaritan couldn't ignore this guy. He crossed the road. He helped him, paid for his room, nursed his wounds, got him back to health, sent him on his way. This is the kind of love that God is calling us to, to not ignore people, to cross the road, to do difficult things, to rub shoulders with people we wouldn't normally rub shoulders with. See, when we understand that we're included that we're called to participate in the inner life of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The byproduct of this is a life of action, of loving neighbor, stranger, and enemy. So how do we do this practically? I mean, it sounds good to throw some coals on your neighbor's pot they can put in their head. I mean, what do we do now in 2017? Well, one thing I think we can do is dialogue with people. See, we're in a political climate now, as you know, where everybody's screaming at each other. Raining online, saying things. We're getting camps. I disagree with you. I disagree with you. But we're not talking to each other. See, we're called to talk to people, to have conversation with people who are very different than the way we think. See, when we do this, it turns enemy into friends. And it helps them to understand that they have a friend in Jesus. It, dialogue opens the way for conversation for deeper things. My dad uh, goes to Truro uh, Episcopal Church in Northern Virginia it's a dynamic church, and they have a Bolivian pastor there who's worked out to the Latino community in that area. So he got my dad's small group, and my dad's very old school, you know, just doesn't like to get out of his comfort zone. And they went to the, where all the day workers were, and they gave him coffee and uh, 
talk to the people. And my dad did not want to do this. I remember asking him afterwards, how was it? He's like, it was all right. It was kind of awkward, you know. But anyway, I could tell in his eyes that he kind of liked it. You see, the Bolivian pastor knew that having dialogue was a way to uh, exchanging coffee, breaking bread, was a way, to, again, to tell people about Christ. People that a lot of people would ignore or drive by. Another thing you can do besides dialogue with people is to tell your story. Tell uh, what God has done for you. Tell about how you know that you've been included. Talk about the grace you've received from Christ. Talk about times when you did things that were uncomfortable, when you talked to a stranger and what God did about that and how God blessed you. We had two girls, uh, Ariana and Austin, who've gone with us to Honduras the last two years. And for the last two years, I've had them share with our youth group about their experience of crossing the road, talking to strangers, going to a new culture. Well, the problem was they talked to my middle school youth group, and we have a lot of eighth graders in the class. We're only allowed to bring 16 kids on our mission trip. Now we have 24 kids that want to go on the trip because they heard their story. And they want to go, too. They want to experience this. They want to know how to live their faith out, how to uh, make bridges to talk to strangers about their faith, to share the good news, to tell people about the friendship they have in Jesus, to develop friendships. Those are two ways, dialoguing with people, just simply telling your story, just like the, uh, the pastor that shared with us on the retreat talked about telling our story. I'll give you two brief examples of my own life. When I was in seminary, I was in Vancouver, British Columbia, Regent College, and it was a fairly conservative seminary, and I was trying to find a place to live. I had the bright idea of bringing my golden retriever to a foreign country and then trying to find a place to live. Nobody would take dogs, and, you know, and it just wasn't working out. And so my roommate, when I left to go back to D.C. to see my parents, uh, put out an ad everywhere. I wanted to just do it in the seminary. put it all through town. And it was especially in this particular area where there was a lot of homosexuals that lived. And I got a, a, a message from this guy named uh, Mike, and he said, yeah, come check out my place. I love dogs. And I'm like, okay, this sounds like it's going to be uncomfortable. I went there, and uh, sure enough, Mike was gay, and uh, he had his, uh, his boyfriend that was there. It was a real small apartment. It was super neat, and I'm, like, super sloppy. There was, it wasn't going to work out. I knew that, and my dog was always dirty and smelled. So, but anyway, I t- he asked me what I did. I told him I went to seminary at Regent College, and his eyes kind of dropped. And I don't know if he had been, what his experience with Christians had been or, you know, but we ended up talking and I shared with him about what I wanted to do. And he had a relative who was a missionary and it was an amazing conversation. You see a stranger, this guy, someone who I normally wouldn't run the same circles with. We were able to talk together to share about our lives. He was very encouraging and he was telling me, oh, I could see you doing mission work. That's awesome. He was very excited about what I was doing. A guy I normally wouldn't uh, be around the same circle with. My brother-in-law is a police officer. Here's one more example. Growing up, I avoided the police because I was doing some bad things in high school. And, and then when I was uh, older, I drove fast, and I was always getting tickets, um, you know, kind of like Greg, you know. So I was, But I learned. He gets away with it more than I do. And so I had, I had a lot of tickets. And, uh, so, and then my sister married a police officer. And... Not that I was that negative, I just didn't know any. And then I started finding out about all the amazing work that he did as a state trooper in Massachusetts, how he, uh, his unit is uh, doing anti-terrorism uh, work, how they were the ones that helped to take down the Boston bomber, and uh, how his team is uh, actually fighting against 
internet criminals that are hurting children. And I'll use it in those kind of words. And so I ended up seeing police officers rather than people that are trying to always get you for doing wrong things in a whole different light. And then at a conference uh, recently, my friend Blair, some of you met, there was a, um, a group of African-Americans. We had a breakout group, and the one guy was in Black Lives Matter, and he wanted to have a breakout group with that, and Blair went. Now, Blair didn't agree with everything, and he was the only white guy in the group, but they had amazing dialogue. They talked. He understood where they were coming from. He, they understood some of his reservations with what they were trying to accomplish, but the guy who led it loved Christ. But he had been hurt very deeply through some racism growing up and believed in this cause. But, you know, normally we can say those people over there put people in different camps, and yet we don't talk to them. We don't find out what's really going on with them. See, these people, they become no longer strangers or even enemies. They can become your friends. And when they become your friends, then they have ears to listen to the friend that you have in Jesus. So what are we supposed to do as a church? Most of us carry an ID, driver's license, or uh, some sort of form of ID. Maybe some of you younger kids, not quite yet. But as church members, we all have an ID card. It says that we are believers in Christ. We are included in the redemptive work he did on the cross. We are called to participate with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in this redemptive work of bringing others into friendship with God, friendship with Christ. To belief. That's a long idea with a lot of words on it, but that's what we are called to as a body. It's not easy. It can be difficult. It can be uncomfortable, just like my dad felt, sometimes even a lot more uh, dangerous as we rub shoulders with people we normally wouldn't. But here's the good news for all of us we have a God who is with us. We're not alone to try to carry this out. We're participating with what God is already doing. So today, there are many camps that people could be in when it comes to their faith. And I'm going to focus on three this morning. Number one, you may be in this camp where you're not sure if you're a believer in Christ. Maybe you've been going through the motions. But maybe today you understand that you're included in the Father's redemptive work through Christ. Maybe the day is the time that you've opened your eyes And you see what Christ has done for you. Maybe today is the day that you say yes. Or perhaps you're in a different camp. Maybe you've been someone who knows all all what I'm saying today. You understand that God died for you. You're saved. You believe all this. But you don't know how to live it out. You're kind of like my friend who was the dry drunk. And when I say that, there was a friend of mine years ago who was trying to uh, be sober on his own. He wasn't going to the meetings. He wasn't working the steps. He was white-knuckling it, just trying to be sober. He was sober, but he was kind of a shell of the man he could be because he wasn't in community. He had no one helping him along. See, we're not meant to try to live our faith on our own, to just go out from here today and say, Steve said, love enemies, so I'm going to go out and find people I don't like and say, hey, I love you. (laughs) That's not it at all. What God is saying to us is that, look, I'm with you. I'm going to fill you with my Holy Spirit. You don't have to do this on your own. You don't have to prove your worth. That's works righteousness. Instead, you're joining me in what I'm already doing. This is what God is calling to you if you're in that camp. Or perhaps you're in this camp right here where you're a believer and you understand and you agree with everything. You're nodding at me. 
and hopefully not because you're nodding off to sleep, but um, you believe it all. If this is the case, I, I challenge you all to write down a, three, a few names, either in your bulletin or in your head, if you, if, you, if you have a real good memory. Who are people that God are calling you to? Who are the neighbors, the strangers, and maybe even the enemies that God is calling you to reconcile with, to break bread with, to tell of what God has done in your life? to make friends with so you can tell them what a friend they have in Jesus. See, when we do this, we understand that no person is viewed as a lost cause or someone beyond the reach of Christ's love. It changes us. It changes our demeanor. It changes the way we live the Christian life. I want to end with a a short story. Uh, Years ago, I watched a, a video of the Green River Killers trial and He was a horrible serial killer who killed over uh, 48 women, they think more now. And they had him on trial. And people were coming up there saying, you are an animal. I hope you end up in a cage for the rest of your life. Other person was saying, I hope you rot in hell. I mean, those were the kind of things. But you've got to remember, these people, justifiably so, this guy had murdered their kids. They were wrong. They were angry. I mean, they they were mad. They were angry. And person after person just threw out all the hate they had for this guy. And he stood there like a sociopath, just stone-faced. And one guy, and no lie, he looks like Santa Claus. He gets up there, has this big belly, big white beard. And he looks at this guy, Gary Ridgway, and he says, I'm a Christian. God calls us to love everybody, and you make it very difficult for me to obey that command. And he kind of looked down for a second, but he looked him in the eyes and said, but I forgive you. You're forgiven by me. And all of a sudden, the sociopath, tears start breaking down his eyes for the first time. See, that's an extreme example. But that's what we're called to do. Not on our own, but with the power of the Holy Spirit. We're participating with what he's doing. And he will empower us to do what is impossible. To love our enemies. To love strangers. To love neighbors. To tell about how we've been loved. How we were once enemies of God. And now we have this real hope from our belief in Christ. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you that when I was an enemy, that you included me in the redemptive work on the cross. And I thank you that's the case for everyone here. For those who don't believe this morning, I pray now they would take that time to ask you into their heart. And for the rest of us, it's time to jump with both feet in, to know that we can do these difficult commands because you've given us the Holy Spirit. You're with us. You're participating with us and giving us the power to do it. Help us to know that. Help us to live this out, to love neighbor, stranger, and enemy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.